Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Montreal, 1975. David Cronenberg stood in the office of Michael Spencer, executive director of the Canadian Film Development Corporation. On the eve of the release of David's first feature, The Parasite Murders, Robert Fulford, editor of Saturday Night Magazine, published a scathing review of the film. But it didn't stop there. In his article titled, You Should Know How Bad This Film Is, After All, You Paid For It, Fulford called into question the utility of an organization like the CFTC. It wasn't just a bad review. It was an attack on the Canadian film industry's funding model. An attack in the crib, as the industry was still in its infancy. Michael Spencer was not only the executive director of the CFTC, but he was one of its architects. A British expat, Spencer had come to Canada as a tourist in 1939, but soon had become stranded, as all passage across the Atlantic was cancelled at the outbreak of the Second World War. In one of those bizarre twists of fate, Spencer heard that John Grierson, a Scotsman, was at the time in Ottawa setting up a new National Film Board of Canada. He made the journey to Ottawa and secured work as an editor and cameraman, and he remained at the NFB into the 1960s. He was on the committee that proposed the creation of the CFTC in 1967. Its continued existence mattered to him, and he believed in its mission to create a viable Canadian film industry. What Fulford had printed in Saturday Night troubled him, It cast an unwanted spotlight on the activities of the Crown Corporation. It was already controversial among many that any sorts of arts funding should come from the public purse. The last thing that Michael Spencer needed was an overzealous member of the official opposition taking this on as their cause. How bad is it, really? David asked. Well, it's not good, old chap. That's for certain. I'd expect a little more difficulty the next time you should seek public funds for a similar project. More difficulty? Jesus, Michael, it took us years to wrestle money out of you guys. How could you possibly make it more difficult? David, you have to appreciate the circumstances. Saturday Night Magazine just held your film as Exhibit A in a case to defund our organization. How can we then turn around and give you more money to make another horror film? Certainly can't do so now. Come on, only a hundred people read Saturday Night. Maybe so, but it's which hundred people are reading that matters. Montreal, 
From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. This is the third episode in our series on the filmmaker David Cronenberg. In our last episode, David had returned from the Cannes Film Festival with a fire in his belly to make movies. He teamed with Cinepix out of Montreal and shot his first feature film based on an original screenplay. That feature film would land him in hot water. This is episode three, Sex in the Snow. controversy over the parasite murders did indeed reach Canada's parliament. Its merit debated on the floor of the House of Commons. Robert Fulford had called it the most repulsive film I've ever seen. And he wasn't alone, with Martin Nelman of the Globe and Mail and Dane Lankin of the Montreal Gazette also attacking the film. To top it all off, of the 100 people that David estimated read Saturday Night Magazine, one happened to be his landlord. The filmmaker and his family were soon kicked out of their apartment citing a breach in the morality clause found in their lease. But Cinepix and Cronenberg did try to stay ahead of the controversy. One way they attempted to win the hearts and minds of the Canadian politicians and bureaucrats who held the purse strings was by distributing a pamphlet. Its cover was designed to look like a voting ballot. It asked one simple question. Is there a place for horror films in Canada's film industry? Below, there were boxes to tick yes or no. It then read... The enclosed material may help you form your own opinion. If there was going to be a referendum concerning their film, Cinepix would do what they could to frame the debate. In the pamphlet, a foreword written by Andre Link underlines the achievements of the film. By the time it was being debated in the House of Commons, the Parasite Murders had had a gala performance at the Edinburgh Film Festival and locked in distribution deals for 52 countries. As a result of those deals, It had already returned the entire $165,000 investment to its producers and the CFTC. This financial success was a blow to anyone pointing fingers at those who funded the film, as a financial investment of taxpayers' money back in Cronenberg appeared to be a sound decision. It was likely also the only thing that saved Michael Spencer's neck and prevented an in-depth inquiry into the CFTC. However... It would appear as though it would be harder for filmmakers like Bob Clark and Ivan Reitman and David Cronenberg to secure funding for the types of genre films they'd previously made. Films like Black Christmas and Cannibal Girls and The Parasite Murders, which, following its Canadian premiere, was retitled to Shivers. What are they? Raging demons from another world? Bloodthirsty creatures that must be killed? Or incarnations of absolute evil? They possess men, women, and children, and drive them to acts of unbelievable horror. No one is safe from them. No power on earth can stop them. The only escape is death. If this picture doesn't make you scream and squirm, you'd better see a psychiatrist. Quick. Controversy aside, or perhaps controversy included, Cinepix was happy with Shivers. In the CFTC, 
despite all of the public and political pressure, never threw the filmmakers under the bus. They took the stance that they weren't censors. Each province had its own censorship board, if anyone was so inclined to block shivers from audiences. Cronenberg's debut film had taken top prize at the Sitges Film Festival in San Sebastian, Spain. It also, perhaps most importantly, grossed $5 million. John Dunning and Andre Link were eager to keep Cronenberg under the Cinepix umbrella. Well, David, what do you got for us next? I do have one idea. It's about vampires. Uh, biologically correct vampires. Nothing supernatural. It's medical science gone awry. Write it up. You think I should do another horror picture so soon? I think you have to do another horror picture. Don't lose this momentum. To get his filmmaker working on his next script, tentatively titled Mosquitoes, John Dunning sent David to his country place just outside of Montreal. It was there that he'd write his story about a young woman who undergoes experimental plastic surgery following a motorcycle accident. Waking from a coma one month after her surgery... The woman now finds herself with an insatiable thirst for blood, and her victims are left to become rabid, zombie-like creatures. Rose reluctantly takes her hands away from her face and slips her left arm out of its shoulder strap. A pause, and then she raises her left arm above her head. Keloid can barely suppress his surprise at what he sees. Nestled in Rose's left armpit is a fleshy, tubular lump with an opening at the upper end of it. Keloid reaches over and presses it gently with his fingertips. Does that hurt? Keloid takes a closer look at the fleshy pouch. The opening at the upper end seems to be surrounded by sphincter muscles. Keloid gently spreads the opening with his thumb. Deep within the pouch, an angry pink color, something glistening seems to be pulsating. When Keloid's head is about a foot and a half from the organ, Rose grabs him by the hair with both hands and strains upward with her body. Keloid emits a low, gurgling scream, which soon cuts off with the suddenness of a thrown switch. Exhausted of energy, Keloid collapses across Rose, who begins to rock him gently from side to side as she pumps the blood from his body. A sick feeling started to infect David's stomach. But it wasn't repulsion. It was nerves. And for the first time, doubt. He looked at the words on the page and wondered out loud, What the fuck am I doing? He had given his most recent pages to John Dunning for review, ready to throw the whole thing out. It's preposterous, John. The whole thing. This woman grows a blood-sucking cock from her armpit and turns people into zombies. I'm gonna be laughed out of the business. Fiction horror. Mosquitoes is weird, but it's compelling. It's a vampire story, but it's also a Frankenstein story at the heart of it. It's literary, even. There's just there's something about this one. Don't abandon it. While writing Mosquitoes, David had an actress in mind to play Rose, the film's lead. 25-year-old Sissy Spacek had few credits to her name at that time. She had done some TV work, including a role on The Waltons. But what had caught David's attention was her recent turn as Holly, the 15-year-old narrator and girlfriend to Martin Sheen's spree killer Kit in Terrence Malick's film Badlands. We had our bad moments, like any couple. Kit accused me of only being along for the ride, while at times I wish he'd fall in the river and drown. 
so I could watch. It was a performance that earned her a BAFTA nomination, but Badlands didn't exactly set the box office on fire in 1973. So when David pitched her as his potential leading lady to his producers, Ivan Reitman and John Dunning, Dunning quickly vetoed the casting. Sissy Spacek? No, 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 no. She has that Texas accent. She'll be out of place in a picture set in Montreal. <laughs> She's an actress, John. I'm sure she can hide her accent. No, 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 no. You're casting for Rose. You want the guys in the audience to fall in love with your lead. She has to be naked in the film. Your girl's covered in freckles. David looked to Ivan for some backup. While Reitman had more commercial instincts than Cronenberg, he also had taste. Surely he would see that Spacek was the right choice. Well, freckles aside, there's a bigger problem we have with Sissy. And that is, we need a name in this role if we want to sell in foreign territories. Frankly, if she's not a name, they'll move the dial for us. We need someone like, uh, Sybil Shepherd, uh, a real girl next door. Ivan seized on this. That's right. Sybil Shepherd type. I doubt Sybil Shepherd could do our movie for what we could offer her. David worried. No. No way. But I might have someone even better. I happen to know Marilyn Chambers is looking for legitimate acting roles. This piqued Dunning's interest. Marilyn Chambers wasn't just a name. She was a superstar. In 1972, she starred in Behind the Green Door, which, along with Deep Throat and The Devil and Miss Jones, was one of a handful of pornographic films to achieve mainstream success as part of the porno-chic wave that hit America in the early 1970s. What made Chambers a sensation at the time was a little modeling job she had done before starring in Green Door. She was, at that time, the wholesome spokesmodel for Ivory Snow. Her face graced every box of detergent, posing with a baby in arms as the all-American mother. This career footnote was immediately seized upon by the Mitchell brothers, makers of Behind the Green Door. They leveraged this fact in the marketing of their film, billing Marilyn as the 99 and 44 100% impure girl, a play on Ivory Soap's slogan at the time. Despite leading to an uptick in Ivory Snow sales, Procter & Gamble dropped Marilyn's image from their packaging once her hardcore career was made public. To sell his director on Marilyn Chambers, Producer Ivan Reitman showed David Sean Cunningham's 1971 softcore mockumentary entitled Together. She looked perfect to him. She looked sweet. She looked, well, she looked 99.44% pure, in fact. She was a good fit for Rose, but he'd have to audition her first. You're live. Hi, Marilyn. Hi. I work for one of the networks. Mm-hmm. And you're a lovely, beautiful, attractive girl. And a fairly good actress. And uh, I have a, what I think is a valid question. Okay. Why, why do you find it necessary to do porno when you could have done Zhivago or that type of thing? Well, let's see. First of all, I've, uh, the last X film I did was um, about three and a half years ago. I haven't done anything like that since. Um, I've... You know, I have a Broadway show, I have a nightclub act, I've been in Las Vegas for one year, in a legitimate stage play, and, um... Do you, do you think now you can make the switch into uh, real acting roles, or of are you... Of course, well, I've always treated as real acting roles. What I do now is real acting role. What I did in Las Vegas for one year was a real acting role, so uh, I feel that I can legitimately say I'm an actress. Okay. 
When Marilyn Chambers arrived in Montreal, Cronenberg was a little surprised by her appearance. He was expecting the fresh-faced 19-year-old he had seen in Together, the mother from the ivory snowbox. He knew behind the green door from reputation, but he hadn't seen it. Chambers had since been headlining a show in Las Vegas, and she looked like a showgirl. She was now married to Chuck Trainer, the Svengali figure and one-time manager-slash-husband to Linda Lovelace of Deep Throat fame. Trainer was a slippery character, the kind of guy eager to show you his gold-plated pistol. It wasn't the kind of company that David was eager to keep. Listen, Ivan later said to David, It would be good for us if you liked Marilyn for the part. Her name means something, and I can go to Cannes and sell the picture. If she's no good, fine. We'll move on. But... But Marilyn Chambers was a good actress. Teased hair and tweezed eyebrows aside, David could see her in the role. Moreover, he wasn't ignorant to the business of making films. If casting Marilyn Chambers helped to get his movie made, well, that was paramount. The CFTC was still stinging over the political backlash caused by Shivers. But unofficially, Cronenberg still had a fan in Michael Spencer. So, to help them get the $530,000 production budget they needed to make the picture, some creative accounting was devised. Cinepix would cross-collateralize. They would apply to the CFTC with a slate of films, one of which was Mosquitoes. The CFTC would then provide the necessary funding to make three pictures. But if anyone looked closely at the books, no public funding would be linked to spending on Cronenberg's film. It was a scheme that worked, up until the time that the other two films stalled and ultimately went unproduced, leaving little coverage for the CFTC. But nevertheless... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hollywood, 1976. It wasn't her first film, but it was her biggest to date. She wasn't sure about attaching herself to a horror movie. If she wanted to be taken seriously as a legitimate actress, it certainly wouldn't ensure a level of respect. To many, horror wasn't that far removed from pornography. But her husband had convinced her to audition, and she had gotten the role, and she had gotten dressed up, taken a limo to the theater that night, and now there she sat, her husband by her side, her director on her other side. The theater lights dimmed, and the projector sprang to life. And then, it dawned on her. She was nude in the film's first scene. She was in the shower. The camera followed her hands as they lathered soap on her breasts and thighs. As she sat there in the theater, full of people all drinking in her naked body, the divide between pornography and horror never felt more narrow. What she didn't know at the time, what she couldn't know, was that the film that she had made, the horror movie that her husband had convinced her to audition for, would lead to her first Oscar nomination. Moreover, the film was a hit. Carrie ended 1977 having grossed $34 million against its $1.8 million production budget, and it made Sissy Spacek a household name.
Toronto 1977. David Cronenberg was seated on the set of 90 Minutes Live. He was there to publicize the release of his new film, now retitled Rabid. Shivers was still near enough in the rearview mirror that in interviews David often found himself on his back foot, asked to defend his film against such labels as filth and pornography. Those were the kinds of questions that he was happy to field. He would wax philosophically about Freud and the subconscious, but what he didn't like and hated to entertain was a debate surrounding Canada's funding model. But on this day, as the esteemed Peter Zosky pressed him on the matter, David pressed back. Well, are you out to create a body of art or are you out to make a fast buck? Because one of the things... Fast? Yeah. It took me four years to get Shivers made. And I made $13,000 for it. That's not a fast and it's not much of a buck either. But your films do make money. Yes, that film finally did make money when it finally got done. While he missed out on directing the film that would have been Sissy Spacek's follow-up to Carrie, the Maryland Chambers gambit did pay off. Rabbit was released on June 1977, grossing $1 million in Canada, making it one of the highest-grossing Canadian films of all time. Well, because that's one of the things that bothers the Canadian Film Development Corporation, is you go and you borrow money from them, you make these dreadful movies, or the, the so-called dreadful by the critics, yeah. you make a buck and return the loans instantly to mm-hmm. the CFDC, and they don't want to admit that they're funding you as a Canadian filmmaker. Well, in a, in a way that's true, actually, because uh, Shivers caused a lot of embarrassment in the Houses of Parliament. In addition, Roger Corman's New World Pictures picked up distribution in the United States. This Film Development Corporation is a government organization. The people who work for it are civil servants. They have to answer to two masters. One is business. If the films don't make money, they say, why is this film losing money? If the film does make money but is sensationalistic in any way, which it really has to be to make money, Questions are raised in the Houses of Parliament. Why, why, are why they is tax all the money? money? No, why is oh. tax money going into oh. this this obscene, perverse film? In just two films, David Cronenberg became the most bankable director in Canada, and it couldn't have happened at a more opportune time. David's move into movie making coincided with a change to Canadian tax laws. In 1974, an investment incentive in the form of a tax break was created with the introduction of the 100% capital cost allowance for feature films. What this meant was, investors in Canadian movies could park their money in a film production and not pay taxes on that money until a profit was turned. And what was a Canadian feature exactly? Well, it had to be a minimum of 75 minutes in length, and two-thirds of the -the above-the-line roles had to be Canadian, and 75% of its production and post-production had to occur in Canada. This loophole in the tax code resulted in an exponential increase in Canadian film production from its 1974 count of three films to a record high of 77 films produced in Canada in 1979. Moreover, it favored the kind of genre filmmaking that Cronenberg had specialized in. In 1976, the Tompkins Report, which had been issued by the Secretary of State, had concluded that a Canadian film could not turn a profit domestically. America held too much of a stranglehold on cinemas. So, Canadian filmmakers should focus on making work for international markets. What did this mean? This meant horror, nudity, and obfuscation of geographical location. While it didn't really matter whether these tax shelter films turned a profit for investors, having a profitable track record did make David an in-demand director. In this new tax shelter ecosystem, David took his first work for hire picture, an action movie centered around the world of car racing called Fast Company. 
Like teens, queens, guys in blue jeans, this is it. The world of the drag racer. Fast cars and fast company. Why didn't you call me a hamlet? You're finished. Now we're gonna run that car, and you ain't gonna stop us. Go away, fans, because there's lots more coming right at you. It's criminal to keep a lover like you on the road for so long. You want to win. You can't stand still. Starring William Smith, Claudia Jennings, and John Saxon. Fast Company. It was David's first non-horror, non-psychological, all-action B-movie. A complete departure from anything he had done before. But... Cronenberg was a gearhead, so he did have an innate interest in the culture of drag racing. In fact, during filming, as he and the crew were hanging out with the real-life drag racers who populated the background of his picture, David came to the realization that it was a subculture all itself, with rich visual and verbal idioms, none of which was present in the script by Phil Sabbath. So, during shooting, the director would wake up at 5am and write until the 7am call time on set weaving in all he was gleaning from the drag racers around him. Fast Company demonstrated David Cronenberg's ability to direct action sequences. He was at home in the motor racing milieu, but unfortunately, the film didn't do much business. However, it was a pivotal film in the filmmaker's career. It was through that Edmonton shoot that he was introduced to director of photography Mark Irwin, production designer Carol Spear, sound editor Brian Day, and film editor Ronald Sanders, all of whom would become Cronenberg's regular collaborators in the years that followed. But as his career began to take shape and build momentum, with shivers and rabbit under his belt and a slate of features on the horizon, not all was well in the Cronenberg home. His seven-year marriage to Margaret Hinson was on the rocks, and he would soon find himself in the middle of a divorce and a bitter custody battle over their daughter Cassandra. More in our next episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It is co-produced by Sonia Jamidi with additional voices by Matt Barnett. This was episode three, Sex in the Snow. In our next episode, we continue our series on David Cronenberg with episode four, Breaking Through. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps us get noticed. And if you want to support the podcast, we've just launched a new Patreon find the link in the notes you can also find us on tiktok twitter instagram and facebook in researching this show i relied heavily on two books cronenberg on cronenberg edited by chris rodley and david cronenberg interviews with sarah grinberg as well as print and online interviews and dvd special features 
Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. Do you want more from me? You can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. Thanks for listening, and until next time. And now Gene's going to start with a gory new thriller called Scanners. Now viewers of this program should know by now that I have a very low tolerance for gory movies, but I must <laughs> admit that I enjoyed Scanners, even though it contains a scene where a human head explodes. I knocked about the media original. Hold on.